0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here at Harvest. Uh, we have been going through the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, we the verses will be on the screen. But man, like, open your Bibles. Like, even if it's a different translation than what I'm going through here, I'll be in the NIV. Open your Bibles. Let's get our—Brian <laughs> loves when I do NIV. I got one fan. Um, Let's just like have our noses in the text. One of my mentor and good friend, CJ, he was our speaker at summer camp this last year. He said, make sure I'm not making anything up. So as, we're, uh, as we, we encourage you to open your Bibles so that you're following along too, that we're, you're a learner just like I'm a learner, even though I'm the one that they gave a mic to this morning for whatever reason. But this last week, um, we're in Acts 15, by the way, starting at verse 19. It's really a two-part from last week where Greg took us partway through, um, and then we're following that this week as well as we finish 19 through, um, close to the end of this chapter, verse 35. But this week, because of our passage, I've been thinking about things that we leave behind in life. And there's just different seasons and different times that we need to be done with things. And I thought of one specific time and you know when you just have those memories from your childhood of you're like why does this like stand out to me like there seems to be no significance whatsoever. I thought of I think it was like seventh grade, a birthday party that I had. And I had my friends come, and I was still at the age. where, like, we're doing all the presents and stuff like that. And we did some sort of outing together, either go see a movie or go to a Blazer game. But we come back together, and we're, I'm opening the presents that these guys have brought. And I had good parents. I still have good parents. that <laughs> didn't, like, go away. I, but my parents did a good job of telling me, hey, when you open a gift, don't just blitz through to the next thing look them in the eye, say thank you, and say thank you for what it is that they gave you instead of just like, oh, thanks, and right on to the next thing, right? Like, so they, they did a good job. So I'm doing that. I'm opening presents, looking my friends in the eye, saying thank you for whatever the thing is. But then I get to this present. I open it, and it's a Lego set. And most of my life, Legos were the thing, I loved Lego, like everything about it. Now I cannot wait for the day where Bennett loves Legos and they're not a choking hazard to him. <laughs> I'm excited for that. It'll be, I kept all my old Legos. But in that moment, in that season of life as this seventh grader, something was shifting in me. And I, I stopped playing with toys. I was just done for whatever reason and it wasn't like I thought they they weren't they weren't awesome anymore. I didn't enjoy the memories I had, but there was something that shifted where I opened it and I looked at it, it was like I don't know if I'm ever going to use this. And it was weird because it was something I loved so much. And the poor person that gave me the gift. I don't remember like if I like conveyed all that with my face and my body language or my thanks right or however but poor person it was one of my best friends actually who knew I loved Legos but he didn't know this thing that was shifting in my heart and my life and that was the season for me where I kind of moved on from playing with Legos and toys and if you're here and you are a closet Legoer and you're in your 40s do not worry this is a safe place more power to you that you are still playing with Legos because I can't wait to get back into it as well But for whatever reason, as as a, a young boy at that point, that was the season that it started to shift for me. And I think we know this about life in general. There are times where we need to leave things behind. Sometimes it's just because of maturity. Sometimes it's circumstantial. But as believers, we know there is a time to leave things behind. Because of the grace that we have received from God, in turn, we leave behind our old ways of living and thinking. We leave behind the things that we once idolized, the things that consumed our hearts and our desires. We leave behind traditions or even cultural norms that really don't reflect the kingdom of God as we continually, continually take hold of the gospel of grace and let that shape our very being, and our outward expression of how we live. If you're just joining us, last week we we started Acts 15 and went through several of these verses, and the problem that we're addressing and that we're still fleshing out this morning in our passage is that there's these Gentile, non-Jewish believers in this city, Antioch. They've responded to the gospel. They've received the Holy Spirit. They are saved But another group of believers has come to them. Most likely, these were Jewish believers who were steeped in the tradition um, of the Mosaic law and covenant with the Lord where they say, hey, you're not saved because you haven't been circumcised. Thankfully, Paul and Barnabas are there and they speak on behalf of the Gentiles and they're like, no, you've got it totally wrong. Like they confront them to their face and say, these are are believers. They have been saved by God, and they take this thing so far. There's so much disagreement. It comes to the council in Jerusalem where these kind of like head honcho leaders of the church gather together because this is an issue that they need to address as more and more non-Jewish people are responding to the gospel. What are we going to ask them to do? What does it mean for someone to be saved? And last week we saw Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, stand up in the midst of this conversation and say, it is by grace and grace alone through faith that we are saved. There is nothing to be added. There is no good deed or no ritual that makes us any more or less saved into the kingdom of God. But the conversation continues. Greg left us hanging that James then says it's by grace we are saved, but... It will go well with you if you abstain from these things. So, how, how can we be saved by grace? But there still might be more that needs to be fleshed out in the midst of that. The question that we will be wrestling with this morning is what is the response to the grace that we've received? Do we just continue to live as we were before Christ? What shifts happen in the heart? in the life, in the mind, in the actions of the believer who's been saved by grace. We'll see this scene conclude in the church as then a letter goes out from this council to these believers in Antioch, and we see that they receive these instructions with great joy. Our big idea this morning, kind of how last week and this week are also joined together, the filter to kind of see everything that we talk about through, is we come to Christ by grace, and by His grace, He helps us to leave behind our old ways of living. Let me pray, and then we're going to dive into our passage. Lord, I want to be a listener and a learner as much as I am a teacher right now. All of us, God, need your help by your Holy Spirit to respond to you rightly. Lord, would you get rid of anything in me that would be distracting or confusing or not clear? And would you just let your words, your message, your instruction to us shine through? Thank you for loving this church, loving these people that are here this morning, God. Help us to respond to your grace. In your name, amen. Acts 15, starting at verse 19. This is in the middle of what James is saying. He says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should... Uh, We should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. We'll dive into that second section in just a bit. So James says, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. There's nothing else that you can do and abstain from these things. It will go well for you. And the four things that James says to abstain from are food, sacrificed to idols, blood, meat of strangled animals and sexual immorality. And each of these things prohibited in this passage are actually connected to Leviticus 17 and 18, where God has been giving instructions to his people on how to live set apart in the world. As they've just come out of slavery in Egypt, now God is forming them into a people, and they're not going to look like the surrounding nations. They are going to be a people that follow Yahweh, that follow the one true God. So there's going to be a way that they act around things like blood or around their sexuality that's going to look so drastically different than the surrounding nations. And three of the four practices that uh, James says to abstain from, they're just listed in chapters 17 and 18 really clearly. The one that's not really is the whole meat from strangled animals. And and that's really in, in connection to the blood of the animal because Not to get, like, graphic, because that's not fun to talk about animals dying. But um, when an animal was strangled, it wasn't clear if the blood had been drained from the body or not before consuming it, right? There was a way to kill an animal to drain the blood first. So to keep themselves clear from this blood, right, they were supposed to just say no to meat that was strangled. Here's one of the connections, though, in, in chapter 17 of Leviticus, starting at first 11. It says, for the, This is the Lord, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood or may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. So even here we see that God is thinking about the other nations, the foreigners who have now joined in and are in the midst of God's people. He's saying, hey, this standard is for you, my people, Israel, and for those who are residing in your midst. So God doesn't say, just stay away from blood because, you gross. Like, don't touch it. That stuff's nasty. There's actually this deep significance when it comes to the blood of any living being. It represents the life that God has given that creature, the life that he's given you and I, the life that he's given all of creation that we see in Genesis as God speaks and and plants are formed, but then animals and birds and fish are formed as well. But also, not only does blood represent the life, it would be the means by which God's people would have their sins atoned for, a life laid down for another life. So we can see some of the connections here to what James is getting at to some degree, but the question that I kept asking in the last couple couple weeks as I'm in this passage, I'm like, but why these four things? Like, out of everything that you could say, like, hey, you're saved by grace, but abstain from these things. He doesn't say greed. He doesn't say don't lie. He doesn't say, like, right, circumcision was the big thing that was uh, being talked about in this. He doesn't include that in the list. Why these four? Is there a connection? Is there something that we should see from these specific four practices being abstained from? And as I got into it um, and looked at what other theologians and scholars said, they were all pretty divided on why these four, (laughs) which was super helpful. Um, And each one, being very smart people also, they were very good at picking apart the other viewpoints and saying why it wasn't those things, but their viewpoint was the one that was the most true to why these four were chosen by not only James, but the council and also the Holy Spirit. Right? They say that it was not only did we see that it was good, but the Holy Spirit himself led us in this way. So here's three kind of of the viewpoints that I came across as I was doing uh, some research here. One of them, why these four might be selected if there is a common thread in them, is tabling together. This idea that Jews and Gentiles were now going to be coming together in close proximity as God's people more and more. And so they were going to have to start considering the other in some new ways. That there was cultural norms for the Gentile people and cultural norms for the Jewish people that were going to clash. And so in order to have community, in order to have koinonia, this common sharing together, there were things that the Gentile believers now needed to abstain from, to consider their brothers and sisters, especially as they came around a table together. And that some of these practices, if not all of them, could be in line with that idea of considering the other above yourselves, as Paul writes later in Philippians Another is pagan practices. That each one of these four things that James says to abstain from here are all linked to some form of idol worship. Antioch was like a cultural melting pot for all these different religions. And so these Gentile people had been exposed to so many different ways that you could worship your God of your choice. And now, though, they were no longer just Gentiles in Antioch. They were brothers and sisters in Christ who had been saved by the work of Jesus, and they needed to live differently in the midst of their culture. They needed to say no to some things that even though it may not have been sin for them to do it, they needed to say no so they stood out and looked different in the midst of a pagan culture. The last one is this, and it's kind of a broad one that people had of this idea of just personal holiness. That there is a heart posture in foregoing each of these practices that deeply matters to God. On surface level, we might go, what the heck, why these four things? But beneath the surface, there is something that God is doing and producing in his people when they say no to these things. That the blood of every creature still is just as valuable to the Lord. That there are deeper idols and desires of the flesh that James is instructing them to abstain from. And I wish this morning I could, as we look at these three, go, it's this one but I can't really (laughs) like it was unclear for me. And maybe you're here and you have a strong conviction as you look at it of what it is. And that's great. But as I was thinking about what, what do we take from this then as harvest church, what do we put into practice? What's our application coming out of this? If we're, if we're unsure of why these four things, if we just like the Gentiles in that day are also to leave things behind when we come to Jesus and that our life is a life of leaving behind our old ways of living and taking hold of the new creation that God has made in us. What do we do with this? How do we respond? I think with each one of these things, there's to some degree, they're all right. Like as I look at this passage, there's maybe some confluence of them working together that all of these things are just not beneficial for the people. But the timeless application here that I see is that there's multiple things throughout Scripture that are re-emphasized, especially by Paul when it comes to why we leave certain things behind, the reasons for it. And there are these three things that I want us to think about this morning, that the reason that we leave behind our old ways of living and thinking Because, one, they're not good for us. Two, they're not good for our brothers and sisters. Three, they're not good for the culture. So let's unpack a little bit of this. First off, they are not good for us. Before Christ, each of us, you and I, the world, we had fallen under a curse. The curse of the knowledge of good and evil. That each person has decided for themselves what they believe is good, what they believe is evil, instead of surrendering to what God's definition of what good and evil actually is. Isaiah 53, 6 says it, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. The world is guilty when it comes to redefining good and evil for themselves. And our text in Acts shows us at least one of the ways that we have redefined good and evil as people, not just in 2022, but from the dawn of time, is how we practice and engage in our sexuality. And since that that shows up in our text, I just want to camp here for a second. And we have to start with this, is that sex is a gift from God to be used in its right context of a husband and wife as means to enjoy, connect, serve and even reflect the very nature of God to join in the creation of life and bringing children into the world. When I was growing up, I didn't hear that said in church very much, which is a bummer, right? Like I remember any time I heard sex talked about in church, it was always attached to like shame and guilt for me. Or needing like, to like, just kind of bypass it or like, ooh, don't bring it up. You shouldn't have those thoughts. You shouldn't have those questions. That's bad. But I'll never forget the Sunday, CJ, my friend that I mentioned, uh, when I heard him in a passage talk about sex. And if you've ever heard CJ talk, he's not a quiet man. Um, and so he was pretty much like yelling, but with joy, like sex is a gift from God for a husband and wife in the ways that God has defined. And that was news to me. But throughout Scripture, the story is, and the story today is, people take the gifts of God, and we twist them. We abuse them. We warp them to fit our own desires. We end up worshiping the gifts of God over the giver of the gifts. Sexual immorality defined as taking God's gift of sex and using it outside of his design of a man and woman who have joined together in the loving union of marriage. And this is so counterintuitive for, for us today to think that not fulfilling our sexual desires, whatever they may be, that somehow that could be to our benefit. But that's what James says here at the end. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. And it has the other three things as well. And he says, but this will go well for you. To have the message that to abstain from sexual desires in 2022, that just sounds crazy to some degree. And I remember what that's like because I have not followed Jesus my whole life. And I know I've shared parts of my testimony before, either when I was baptized here or in other sermons, but there was a portion of my life before Jesus where I ran after every sexual desire that I had. And while there are certain areas of sexual immorality that I cannot relate to, I don't know what it's like. I know what it's like that porn mutilates God's design for sex. I know that sex outside the context of marriage is a long road of selfishness and insecurity. I know the emptiness of chasing after love apart from God. And I remember a moment of feeling numb to all of it, where I couldn't remember the last time I felt bad. Even though I had been brought up to think and live differently, I remember not feeling bad that I was using these people to fulfill my sexual desires that love was no part of it at all. In all of it, I was seeking to glorify myself over God. And isn't that the case for any form of sexual immorality? Whether acting on same-sex attraction, adultery, or any form of lust, when we seek to glorify our desires instead of glorifying the Lord, it leads to brokenness and sin. I remember one Sunday during this season in my life, uh, I was dating... A girl at the time, she wasn't a believer either. And we went to church, and I don't know why. It's one of those things now I'm like, man, Lord, I don't remember all the details that came together, but this was your grace to me in that dark state. But we went into church and heard a sermon that had a similar message to this. And we left, and we went out into our car, and we sat there, and I still remember the tree the car was sitting under on Second and Broadway in Portland. And I turn on the engine, and it's like both at the same time, we were like, we need to stop doing what we've been doing. And we sought to do that for a time, but we tried to do that apart from Jesus. Because both of us recognized, oh yeah, maybe this is bad, but we didn't actually turn to Jesus in our sin. We cannot kill our sin apart from the radical grace of God. This morning we sang, I will slay my sins by grace and grace alone. The only way that you and I, whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's any other of the litany of sins that we struggle with, that we're tempted by, the only way that it comes to its end, to its death, is when we, broken and weak, go to the cross over and over and over again and say, Jesus, I need the gospel. I need the good news that you make me new. I need the good news that you, Lord, you sent your son to take on my sin, the sins of the world, that in Jesus our sins were put to death on the cross. And as his body went into the grave, our sins were sealed there. And as he rises again out of the grave, we too receive new life in the places that once felt so dead, If you're here this morning and there's an area of sin where you have just felt death, it's felt empty, it's felt void, it's felt like there's no way I'm ever going to get out of this, the answer is the gospel of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and there's anything you relate with that we just talked about, one of the things the enemy likes to do is make us feel alone. He likes to keep us in the dark. He even tells us the lie that, hey, when you come to church, you have to put your best foot forward. People can't know what you're struggling with. People can't know that you messed up this week. What will they think of you? Will they include you in their singing or in their worship anymore? But those are all lies. Lies. The truth sets us free. If you're here in sexual immorality or any other sin that's coming to your mind or heart right now is something that's pressing on you, do not leave before talking to a brother or sister in Christ, one of the staff, one of the elders, someone in the same row as you. Confess those things and bring those things to the Lord so that we might walk in the light. The second reason that we leave things behind is because they're not good for our brothers or sisters in Christ. Several of the actions that James and the leadership prohibit here seem to be in place so that the Gentile Christians would consider their Jewish brothers and sisters. One of those things might be this food that's sacrificed to idols. And why I think of this one in particular is because Paul elaborates on this further in Corinthians, when he writes a letter to the church in Corinth. If you want to, feel free. You can flip in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And the section that we're diving into here, kind of some of the context around it, is Paul is writing to them saying, like, hey, you have these freedoms in Christ now. And for some of you, specifically with food that's been sacrificed to idols, you're asking, can we eat this or not? And Paul's saying, some of you possess the knowledge to know that the idol that this food was sacrificed to, it it doesn't have any power. And you eating the food that was sacrificed to it doesn't make you any less clean or any more clean than you already are. But here's the thing. Maybe you still shouldn't eat it. And here's why. Verse 9. Be careful, however, that that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again. And some of you, you're going to be stuck the rest of the service thinking about that this morning. So that I will not cause them to fall. Summed up, Paul says, our freedoms in Christ need to be tempered by our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And wall for you here this morning, as you think about not in your knowledge or in your faith and how that's expressed and not wanting younger people in their faith, or as he uses the word weaker, where they just haven't come to a place where they they trust in the Lord to go forward with this thing, as you think about what that may look like in your life to not set someone up to fall into temptation, my guess is it's not about food sacrifice to idols, where, where if that is you, I'd love to hear your stories, because that's really crazy to me that that's still going on. Um, But what could it look like? Could it be, could we take the same posture as Paul and say, if I ever posted anything on social media that would cause anybody to sin, I'd rather delete all my accounts together if I ever was to recommend this show or this series that would cause a weaker brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll cancel my subscription because I care more about that brother or sister than that thing that I have a freedom to watch or to do or to think about or to believe. I'd rather give it up for their behalf has the gospel so shaped our perspective that we will lay down our rights for the sake of other believers? Taking on the same attitude as Christ, who laid down his rights. He became a servant. He humbled himself to the point of dying in our place. People that were undeserving of it People who were weaker, his weaker brothers and sisters, he laid it down so that we might receive his life. The last reason we leave behind our old ways of thinking and living is because they're not good for the culture. And this one may be a head scratcher of like, so wait, are we supposed to just like try to benefit the culture at all times? What are you saying here? Well, in the context of this passage, I think I said this earlier, Antioch was this pagan society, this melting pot of all these religions and all these different cultures. And now as Gentiles in that society are placing their faith in Jesus, they're still living in the midst of that culture. And yet their identity no longer is shaped and comes from their culture, from where they live. It comes through knowing Jesus and what he's done. So for them to say no in the marketplace or at the table with other believers to say, or not other believers, with non-believers to say no to the mead of a strangled animal, while it seems insignificant to some degree, they're also saying, like, I'm not bowing down to the cultural norms anymore. And actually, I belong to a different story. They were no longer going to just say yes to the things that were uh, that, that the, the society said, this is the way that it goes. But in their re- resistance to these things, they also were exposing the need in those cultures and societies for the true hope of the gospel. Because now they had adopted the new rhythm of the kingdom of God, which in so many ways is countercultural. It's an upside-down kingdom. So Harvest, where do we need to live counterculturally? culturally My guess is the list is pretty long. But as I was thinking about this, I, want, I wanted to talk to you as a youth pastor for just a minute or two. Because something I've noticed as I've worked with youth, something I've noticed even in my own heart, is one of the ways that we need to live counterculturally, is that we need to have a different re- relationship with our phones than the rest of the world does. And it may sound silly, but it's true. How do I know that it's true? Well, for one, I've heard student after student share about how anxious and depressed they are and how they can even link it to their phones a lot of the time, when they should be so connected, right, with all the social media all the different ways that we can stay in contact. And yet what I think COVID exposed in a lot of ways is how empty a lot of that actually is and how disconnected we feel a lot of the time, especially when we get into space where it's just us in our room. But not only do I know that from students and their experience, I know it from my own experience as well, because I'm sitting front row needing to to be obedient to Jesus in this and to grow. Because I've seen how I use my phone to escape when things get hard. I see, I've seen my attention span dwindle. I've seen that I need to be entertained all the time. I've seen my desire for noise increase. I've seen my comparing myself to others and do I actually have a good life? rise in my heart and my mind. And while I wouldn't classify myself as someone who just wrestles with deep anxiety and depression, the correlation between phone usage and the rise of the iPhone and what it's doing in our young people is undeniable that there are direct links there. And with everything I just listed, is there anything that describes what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Escaping, needing to be entertained, anxious, depressed. Something needs to change there, especially as we think about the next generation. And do I have all the answers? No. But even this week, as this was something at least I was being convicted about, I started deleting some apps, started trying to put my phone in my bedroom and just leave it. Be more present with my wife and my son. Present with God, to not need another voice of disc golf commentary like going on in the background all the time. Psalm 46 10 says, Be still and know that I'm God. We need to model for our young people what it looks like to be still before the Lord before we start telling them how they need to do this or do that with their phones. We need to model it for them of what it looks like to be people who follow Jesus and have a right relationship with these devices that hold so much power. Because I imagine for these Gentiles, as they start checking in to see, is that meat strangled or not? Like, is there still blood in there? This was probably something that wasn't like crazy for them to do. It was just a normal day-to-day kind of thing. That needed to shift in their hearts and in their lives. And sometimes when we think about living counterculturally, we think about the big things that are just right in the forefront, but also we need to be disciples of Jesus in the little things, the things that can go unnoticed. Let's end our passage. This letter is sent out, chapter 15, starting at verse 30. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preach the word of the Lord. Another story in Acts that starts with conflict, disagreement, and ends with the word going out. And this letter started in Antioch, right? But then it's shared with Syria and Cilicia as well. Others got to benefit from this conversation the council had. And so why is it received with joy for these believers in Antioch? Well, for one, probably first, they're like, Oh, we actually are saved. It is by grace alone that we're saved. We didn't have to get circumcised or do all these other things in order to be saved. What a relief. It's true. When we receive the Holy Spirit, that wasn't just in our minds. Like, this is an act of God. But also, I wonder if there was joy for them in saying no, in leaving some things behind. I don't know about you, but I remember when I first believed. Taking hold of this new identity in Jesus and leaving behind who I used to be, God brought joy to me over and over again in doing that. And God continually brings joy to those who obey his word and respond to it. We also get to see a little good church leadership here. A disagreement happens and they don't just say, well, actually, you should go to that church now, and you should go to this church now. But they, like, talk through it and seek the Holy Spirit, come together, and then they send the best of their best to convey this message. They don't just tweet it at them or text it to them. They send people to them to say it face-to-face and then to shepherd them through this transition. That actually the disagreements that believers can have it sometimes can lead to joy when we Reconcile because God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. I want to end with this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 16. Paul writes this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. As the early church sought to reconcile this disagreement in their midst, in so doing, they also declared the message of the gospel, the good news that we are saved by grace alone through faith, and that there are things for believers to leave behind in our discipleship, to Jesus because these things are not good for us. These things are not good for our brothers and sisters. These things are not good for the culture.